0: People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to
1: be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for
0: everyone. Paul Sheldon is a collaborative fundraising development consultant and CEO of GreenPrisons.org. He's also the founder of Dreamosophy, a self-reflective personal and professional development process that helps participants get a better night's sleep and develop a healthier relationship with their dream lives. He is the author of several books, including Wisdom of Dreaming, A Guide to an Effective Dream Life. Welcome, Paul, to HealthGig.
2: Cool. Well, thank you for having me.
0: We have so much we want to talk about, but we want to begin by just hearing a little bit about you and where you grew up and a little bit about your life and then how you got interested in the dream life.
2: I often joke that I induced my parents to move from Vermont to California while I was in the womb so that I could be born in California. (laughs) And I was in Pasadena, California. And then I got to live through the 1950s and 60s and 70s in Southern California, which was a very exciting time. Dreams were all around uh, and consciousness was all around. I had a wonderful dream in 1963 in which I saw... President Kennedy floating in a canoe, lying down next to a dock that I was on. He had flaming red hair. And I woke up wondering, what's with the flaming red hair? And that day he was assassinated. It affected How old me were deeply. you? I was maybe 12, 13. And I remember wondering, what what is this about dreaming and waking? What's the connection there? And that began a lifelong fascination with consciousness and awareness. I eventually completed both bachelor's and master's degrees in human development. And I studied how do people's lives change when they have a dream to live for? that eventually led to learning how to raise money to help people realize their dreams, because it's surprising how often people get stopped from realizing their heartfelt, worthwhile dreams because of the money. And so I began raising money for nonprofit organizations and for-profit projects and learning how to track money and account for money, because it's often the thing that nobody else wants to do. But along the way, my father died When I was 20, and I had another profound dream about him, which maybe we'll have time to talk about later, but that led me to return from Pittsburgh, where I was at college, back to California, and I wrote a proposal on how to study human awareness. I didn't want to study the contents of awareness. I wanted to study human awareness as such. I couldn't find a psychology faculty person in the six colleges that I checked who understood what I was talking about. They wanted to talk about how the eye sees color and how the brain works and how synapses process information. And I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in consciousness. That's a bit of my saga. And then it's been a wonderful ride ever since then.
1: Wow. That's all we can say is, wow. So it's almost like you were ahead of the curve on the dream analysis, but you started, you said back in the 60s, really full on taking a look at this whole phenomena of the dream world, right? And not just the dream world, but
2: the phenomenon of consciousness and that people are aware and that we share awareness that we can communicate with each other.
1: Tell us what is the phenomena of consciousness? When you say that, what do do you
2: mean? (laughs) That is the great mystery. (laughs) You know, the Jewish tradition says the manifest world and human consciousness are how God comes to know the cosmic self. So there's a divine presence in whom we live and move and have our being, which is fundamentally conscious. Life is aware, and life is awareness. And our awareness is a reflection of a spark of the divine. I remember in the 1960s, I was reading Meher Baba, who was uh, an Indian sage in the early 20th century. And I read Ram Dass' work and Paramahansa Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi. And I learned transcendental meditation, and I learned Zen meditation, and I studied Aikido. And all of these were about what is consciousness? Who am I? Who are you? Is there anybody out there? Am I just imagining all this? I don't have an easy answer for you. It just is that the basic truth of reality, of awareness, is consciousness. It amazes me now how quantum physics is coming to recognize that the observer and the phenomenon are not separate. Being observed influences the phenomenon. Being measured is largely determined by the tools that we use. If we use a particular type of sensor, we will sense what that sensor can sense. If we use a different type of sensor, we might get a different result. And then the whole world of dark matter and dark energy, the idea that when the astrophysicists finally calculated how heavy the Earth should be, that's fine, but when they calculated how heavy the universe should be, all of the physical matter in the universe All the galaxies and stars didn't have enough mass to account for the calculated weight of the universe. And so they came up with this idea of dark matter, which isn't really dark, it's transparent, that has mass, but no energy. And it has weight and presence, but no Mm -hmm. energy. And that just boggles my mind. I have no idea what they're talking about. (laughs) But it rings true for the notion of consciousness. Because I don't either.
0: (laughs) Back to the business of dreaming. There are so many theories as to why we dream. You know, do we dream to remember things? Do we dream to forget things? Why do we dream?
2: That's another mystery. (laughs) We don't really know. So I'll give you three possible theories about that. The popular scientific theory right now is that the brain remains active during sleep, and it is generating electromagnetic signals randomly. And during part of that sleep time, the meaning centers in the brain create random meaning because that's their nature. That's what meaning centers in the brain do. They create meaning. And so because we believe that there should be some kind of pattern to the signals that are going on in our brain, we create dreams. I think that's horse pucky. (laughs) It sidesteps (laughs) the truth of consciousness and the primary nature of consciousness. It's like the old bumper sticker that says we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual right. beings having a human experience. You know, we're not human beings who are dreaming. We are the dream of being human. So I like Stephen Leberge's speculation about that. He speculates that when mammals were developing along the evolutionary line that became human, Back a million or two million years ago, when we were something like lemurs that lived in the forest canopy of the forests of Africa in the jungles, because the brain is active almost all the time, the animals that were active during the night got eaten by predators. And the animals that could stay still during the night were less likely to get eaten. And so there was a natural selection that influenced Those of us who could go into deep sleep, who could remain dreaming and not move our arms and legs while it's dark, survived. Dreaming evolved as a way of entertaining the consciousness. Otherwise, we might wake up and move. I kind of like that. Right. And then there is the traditional tribal approach that's more like what I was just talking about that says all of manifest reality, what we call reality, is imaginary. It's an illusion. The phenomenon of consciousness that we describe as waking reality is actually imaginary. It's a dream. And that's where there's a confluence between science and philosophy. Maybe we are dreaming what's out there, because the brain is always interpreting visual signals, auditory signals, taste, touch, all of that is being processed in the brain. And it does not really have a strong correlation to what scientific instruments would measure. All the spectra of light that are beyond the visible spectrum, all the forms of sound that are beyond what we can hear, all those forms of vibration and phenomena in the universe, we're perceiving a very tiny fraction of that. And so the traditional tribal peoples will say, the dream is where we come from when we're born and where we go to when we die. And all of this is just a dream of a cosmic being that's dreaming this reality. And we're a part of that.
1: Whoa. So what do you think?
2: I'm pretty enamored (laughs) of that last description. First of all, it's ancient. We know that it's thousands of years old, probably tens of thousands of years old. From before we conceived of time as linear, people sat around campfires and they talked about dreaming. And in the tribal societies, usually sharing dreaming is an important part of the morning. And when a dream is shared, it becomes not an individual dream, but a dream of the community. And the elders assist in evaluating whether or not this dream has meaning and purpose for the community. That's why the oldest accounts of dreams in the sacred texts almost always are spoken of as unusual, recalling a dream is unusual, and important to be interpreted in case it's a prediction of something that's going to happen. I don't use the word reality very often, Being a child of the 60s, I did inhale when I was in college, and I did experiment (laughs) with psychedelic drugs. And the first time I took LSD, I was reading Meher Baba, and Meher Baba used to talk about being a drop of consciousness in the cosmic ocean being a grain of sand on the cosmic beach, that we are not separate from nature or truth or consciousness. And so my first LSD experience, I was in the mountains in Southern California, and I laid down in a little mountain stream and I dissolved into the sand and became just pure consciousness.
0: I'm glad you didn't drown.
2: Indeed. (laughs) But it makes me glad that consciousness is primary. And I've had several near-death experiences, not post-death, but just considering my own death, in which I wondered, what if this is it? You know, What if I'm not going to be anymore as I was? What if I'm not going to be an individualized consciousness? What will be there? And then the imagining dissolving into pure consciousness rings true for me. It's not real. It's not like knock on wood, hard reality that you can verify experimentally. But that to me, the notion that there is truth and that truth manifests as reality is much more important to me because every person has a unique point of view. Our perspective is unique. So the three of us who are talking today and all of the people who are listening, each of us has our own point of view, our own perspective, which is real for us. The existentialists used to say, if you experience it, it's true for you. If you experience it as reality, it's real for you. But then all the research on optical illusions and fantasy and schizophrenia also establish that your reality is not my reality. And so you're having an experience that's your own. And so I don't talk much about reality because every person has to describe reality as it occurs for them. I'm more interested in truth, what is true for us.
0: Practically speaking, How do we remember dreams because I know in preparation for this call and I said to myself I'm just gonna remember my dreams because I think it would be great to talk about my dreams And I sort of remembered my dreams and then promptly forgot them help us with that
2: First of all, we once again, we don't know how we remember dreams. We know that we remember dreams Memory is less of a mystery than it was before brain science, but why we remember some dreams and not others, and why we remember parts of our dreams and not all of them, a lot of research going on there about the discrepancies between dreaming and waking. So we experience things when we're dreaming that are not consistent with our taken-for-granted assumptions about the nature of reality. If I'm talking to my dead grandmother... Or if I'm talking to my unborn child, or if I'm surfing a hundred foot tall tsunami. Jung used to say the cacophony of waking life drowns out what he called the collective unconscious, what I call the dream stream. And so the phenomena of waking life are more primary because that's what we had to experience, what we had to speak about in order to get food, in order to get belonging in a social group, in order to belong in a family. You know, the early acquisition of language is all about what do you want? What do you think? What are you doing? And I'm supposed to say, I want, I'm doing, you're doing. And that takes a few years to acquire that language of self, to use the first person pronoun, which is questionably grounded in reality. The experiential reality of infants and young toddlers is not about a separate self, it's about mommy and is mommy okay? And if mommy's okay, I'm okay. And as the individual toddler begins to distinguish him or herself from mommy, then we're taught to experience the world as things. We bump into a wall or step on something sharp and we experience pain, and we're given language to describe this subject-object distinction that is not inherent in consciousness. And even verbs are not universal to all the subject, verb, object, way of describing reality is not universal in all languages. When you ask me about remembering dreams, part of why we don't remember dreams is that they're much more fluid and flexible than what we've been taught to believe is an objective, waking reality. Dreams are malleable. They're responsive. So if I say when I remember my dreams, I remember myself, or if I say I'm going to sleep and I'm going to dream, and when I wake up, I'm going to remember my dreams, the dream stream responds. The dream stream is responsive to what we call dream incubation.
1: Okay, wow, that was so much information. <laughs> and so it's like we're our dreams and we're our life and it's all one. But what I want to know is, you know how you look up and you're like, okay, I have that recurring dream. One of mine used to be when my teeth would be falling out, you know, then I'd Google and say, what does that mean? So it's anxiety. Like, who's the guy out there interpreting the dreams when I Google them? And do we all share dreams and all that?
2: We don't know. (laughs) And there are many (laughs) traditions. I'm not the possessor of the truth. I have a unique approach to dreaming, which I call dreamosophy which literally means the wisdom of dreaming. To remember dreams is a unique privilege. When we remember dreaming, what we do about that is an existential choice. There are cultural biases. We get told as a child, oh, that was just a dream. We wake up scared or terrified, all my teeth fell out, or there's a monster in the closet. And the adults say, oh, that was just a dream. They don't say that in all cultures. In some cultures, the adults, when a child wakes up from a terrifying dream, will say, really? And what did the monster say to you? Did you talk with the monster? Did you touch it? There are very many different cultural traditions about how to deal with these phantasmagorical dreams. Tibetans, for example, describe the world that we experience in dreaming with the word bardo, which is an alternate realm of experiencing that's not the physical manifest world. Occupants of the bardo are living beings who have as much authenticity as we do and as the people we meet in our waking lives do. As in the tribal traditions, trees have identity and mountains have identity and oceans and rivers. Fire is a living being. The whole tradition of elementals of earth and fire and air and water and metal as sort of broad generalizations Classically, those are described as living beings. The sun is a living being. So that's all fascinating to me, and I don't have the answers. But I do know that for me personally and professionally, as a, quote, dream expert, I'm not as interested in interpreting dreams as our culture would have us be. I think that's one thing to do with dreaming, but it's not the only thing. What the dream means to me is what matters. What your dream means to you is what matters.
1: So what you're saying is this interpretation that maybe we're all into isn't really the focus of where you think that we can get the most out of our dreams. Is that right?
2: Exactly. So interpreting dreams is very useful and interesting, It's fascinating. There are many traditions of dream interpretation. But when someone says to me, I've had the strangest dream, maybe you can tell me what it means. My response is, what it means is you had a dream and you don't know what it means. Now we can engage in inquiry. That's a place to start. Are there themes in this dream that recur? Are there characters in this dream that recur that you've noticed from other dreams? Is there a message in this dream? And I love metaphors and I love puns. So for example, if I dreamt that someone has a hurt knee, I would ask, are those person's needs being met? If my knee is hurting, oh. I ask, do I have what I need? If someone dreams they have a stomach ache, I'll ask, is there something going on in your life that you just can't stomach? If someone dreams that they have diarrhea, I'll, I'll ask, okay, what scares the you know what out of you? <laughs> that to me is one sideways approach to is there a message for me in this dream? Is there someone or some aspect of the dream stream that's communicating to me something that's important? And if you don't mind, I'll descend into a little story here about that. Many years ago, when I was studying lucid dreaming, I was interested in what's next in my development. Can I dream up what's next for me? I have a recurring theme in my dreams of being chased. And so I said self. I had
1: that one too. (laughs) The next
2: time that I dream of being chased, I'm going to open a door and walk into a psychiatrist's office, and I'm going to ask the psychiatrist what's next for me in my development. So I dreamt that I was being chased. This band of evil people were chasing me down a dark alley, and I was terrified. And I thought, wait a minute, I don't get chased like this in my waking life. I wonder if I'm dreaming. I'm going to open a door and walk into a psychiatrist's office. So I opened the first door I came to, and it was a psychiatrist's office. And I laid down on the couch and Sigmund Freud walked in with his little goatee, his (laughs) notepad. And he said, you worry too much about whether or not people like you. And I woke up. Now, I did not have to interpret that dream. I didn't have to ask. That was was a weird dream. I wonder what (laughs) it means. (laughs) I got a direct message. And I've had dreams where I saw airplanes towing those sky signs with messages written on them. Dream incubation is much more interesting to me than dream interpretation. Like, here's this weird dream. What can we make of this? Where can we go with this?
0: So I read that dreams are like overnight therapy, that dreams can help us with emotional distress or complicated thoughts and feelings we might be having. So is that a little bit more how you view dreams?
2: Well, I've certainly observed that about dreams, that dreams help us process trauma and distress and anxiety. I saw a t-shirt last week that I'd never seen before on a young woman standing at an ATM at a bank and the back of her t-shirt read, your anxiety is lying to you.
0: That's true, that's so true.
2: So much of what we experience is based on assumptions about events or assumptions about the nature of relationships or situations. That process of lessening anxiety I used to be terrified by tsunami dreams. You know, I'd be on the shore and this 100-yard tall tsunami would be approaching the shore and I'd be terrified. Through cultivating that experience, I learned to surf tsunamis, which is quite exhilarating. To surf down the face of a 100-foot tall wave is quite exhilarating. And then I also learned that I could fly when a tsunami was coming and I could fly away or I could ask. Like I had a lot of tsunami dreams before the pandemic started and during the early days of the pandemic. And I remember waking up and wondering, gee, is there something bigger than me, bigger than culture approaching us that's going to wash over us that we need to be ready for? That whole anxiety theme is important. And when we work in prisons, women often come to us and say, can you help me recover from trauma? I have traumatic dreams based on the experiences that I've had in my life. And I need help recovering from that trauma. And so that's a really important aspect of dreaming, is recognizing that the trauma that we sometimes are scared of in our waking lives occurs in our dream lives. And for people who are incarcerated, particularly women who are incarcerated, 85% of women who are incarcerated have been trafficked for drugs, sex, or both. And most men who've been incarcerated are coming out of lives of trauma. Childhoods filled with trauma, and one of the axioms I like in restorative justice is hurt people hurt people. And so when someone's done something hurtful or irresponsible or damaging, the first question to ask is, are they acting out their trauma? It's not always true. Some people are just different and they do hurtful things and they don't know why. But when I wrote the book, The Wisdom of Dreaming, about dreamosophy and our unique approach to dreaming, I knew some prison wardens because I had been asked to help green America's prisons and jails to help prisons and jails learn how to be sustainability-oriented and environmentally responsible as institutions, because large prisons are communities. There are thousands of people residing there and going in and out on a daily basis, and they have a very big environmental footprint. And so prisons were very interested primarily in how to save money, but also then how to be responsible and how to teach people who are incarcerated to fit into a new green economy, so that when they come out, they can be more able to get jobs. Some friends and I started a website called greenprisons.org to show correctional institutions how to be more sustainability-oriented and how to be environmentally responsible in ways that protect public safety and protect the security of the institution, but also save money and create a new identity for people who are incarcerated to grow beyond a gang identity, to have an identification with being a responsible person. My favorite phrase in that regard is to live a life worth giving, to have people coming out of incarceration begin to consider, my life is worth something. I have something to offer that's valuable. I can teach you how to plant a garden. I can teach you how to grow food on your lawn. Hey, kid, don't go into that gang drug life like I did. Get into healthy food and I can show you how to grow food. One of my favorite clients these days is a recovery program in Medford, Oregon called Golden Rule Reentry that proactively reaches out to people coming out of incarceration and helps them reenter society in positive and growthful ways. My other favorite is Planting Justice, which is in East Oakland, California, that works in consort with a program called the Insight Garden Program that started out at San Quentin State Prison. And the Insight Garden Program teaches gardening as a metaphor. They actually plant gardens on prison yards, but then they have classroom sessions to invite people to consider their lives as gardens and to consider themselves as gardeners in the garden of dreams and what kind of fruit and vegetables are you cultivating for the people around you to enjoy? And are you offering something to your community that's of value? And Planting Justice offers full-time jobs to graduates of the Insight Garden program when they get out. Planting Justice will hire them for $17 an hour plus benefits to teach people in underprivileged neighborhoods how to convert lawns to food gardens. What a great way of creating employment. And so these metaphors to me are very important because it led into prison as metaphor. In college, when I was on my journey to human development, for a while at Duquesne University, I studied existential phenomenological psychology, which is one of the reasons I couldn't find a faculty person who knew what I was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Because the most common response to existential phenomenological psychology is, what. (laughs) authors like Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre and Rollo and people in the 1950s and 60s were writing about being trapped in the human condition. You're imprisoned in your body, in your culture, in the language you speak, in the family you were born into. There are some things we can change and some things we can't, which is like the old Alcoholics Anonymous prayer, you know, God grant me the wisdom. That metaphor of being human as a prison to me is fascinating. And so one of the early chapters in the book Wisdom of Dreaming is how to be free in your dreams. And when I wrote the book, I went to some wardens and said, hey, can I teach a course to your incarcerated people titled How to Be Free in Your Dreams? Because people who are physically incarcerated in prison have no way out. And if they're serving long sentences, to be able to escape into the dream world can be very healing. It can be terrifying. And we teach early on how to deal with trauma, how to feel good in your dreams is a really important theme for all of us because whatever we're dreaming to start is where we start. And then we can cultivate a relationship with our own dream lives like an old friend so that we have a positive, growthful relationship with our dreams.
0: Trish and I had an opportunity yesterday to do something that reminds me a lot of that, and we were part of the Frederick Douglass Project, which brings people into prisons to create human connections, which changes the way all of us think and act about each other. It hadn't occurred to me that you could do the same thing with dreaming.
2: I've been to Frederick Douglass's house, and he's a wonderful role model for someone who dreamed of a world that was possible. And of course, Martin Luther King famously said, I have a dream. As I mentioned earlier, my college studies were focused on people who have a dream to live for that's bigger than themselves. One of my favorite creative dreamers is a woman named Laura X. That's her pen name. She found out when she was in her 20s that it was legal in 46 states in the United States for a husband to rape his wife husbands were specifically exempted from the definition of rape in 1969 and in 14 states social companions were exempted from the definition of rape so laura took on the project of eliminating those exemptions so that a woman could say no along the way her friend susan brown miller coined the phrase date rape which they also used to eliminate those exemptions for social companions and joe biden has Publicly thanked Lara X for her work because that made possible his national violence against women legislation to begin to reduce violence against women. And some creative dreamers like Frederick Douglass, who dreamed of people being free and of not being enslaved, and Martin Luther King, who dreamed of children could play with each other and not be worried about the color of their skin, or Mahatma Gandhi, who dreamt of being able to have India be a free nation that was not colonized by a foreign power and to make that transition in a nonviolent way. These are creative dreamers who put forth a future that's discontinuous from the past. And in a similar way, people who've been incarcerated can dream up a life worth giving, can dream up a way of re-entering society. And 95% of people who are incarcerated do come back to society, and more than 60% of those people end up back in prison because they don't have a welcoming culture that's based on compassion and kindness and welcome and belonging that they get welcomed back into. This is an important aspect of what my mother used to call the great work, the work of bringing souls to truth. And what the early Christians called metanoia, what's been translated into English as repentance, to think again, to reconsider. In the United States, one of the early models for incarceration was not just a prison, but a penitentiary. And this is William Penn, (laughs) fittingly, who said when people have acted out in harmful ways, We should give them a time out, give them a place to live, a cell to live in, bread and water, a Bible, and the ability to repent, think again what your life is about and do you want to have your life be of value to other people. That was a very strong movement in the early days of American incarceration and is still there today in the form of restorative justice. This notion of dynamic security that prison staff, jail staff, first of all, can be taken care of themselves, can be respected as valued coaches and mentors and people who matter. They're not prison guards. They go through training to learn how to deal with crisis situations in ways that protect the staff, that protect the public, but also take care of incarcerated people and treat them with dignity and respect. That tradition is very much alive and very much disputed because many other people say, lock them up, throw away the key, make stiffer sentences, three strikes, you're out. You know, all those kinds of memes, those ideas, they don't die out. It's an iterative process. Unfortunately, right now, we have both of those approaches very prominent in American culture. The restorative justice, the compassion and dignity, the planting justice approach, the golden rule reentry approach is very much alive and well, but struggling to get funding and support from the broader community and the lock' them up, increase the sentences, Throw away the key, get them out of here, is also very much alive and well. A person whose name I don't mention is very famous for saying people who are incarcerated are animals, get them out of here. We don't want anything to do with them. That's a dialogue that's important for people to participate in, to take a stand. And then not to have taking a stand be refusing to listen, but to take a stand on what you care about and then engage in dialogue with other people about what's going to work for us as a community.
1: So has the program in the prisons been successful? Have you seen, has it been measured or where is that?
2: It's in process in that regard. It was being successful before the pandemic. We were in six prisons and jails in four states with how to be free in your dreams and untangling relationships for waking life issues. And then the pandemic hit and who knew that it was going to be hard to get into prison? Most of the prisons locked down for safety reasons and there were no group programs. There's no internet access. So we lost that momentum. And we're now in the process of recovering that momentum. We just got our first large book order, not for Wisdom of Dreaming, but for the book Untangling Relationships that we use to help people reduce trauma and take responsibility in their waking lives. A very large prison in Ohio just ordered 150 copies of the book to begin offering the Dreamosophy approach In their facility. And we have three other facilities that are still using the program, and we're in the process of reaching out. The pandemic, unfortunately, also seriously impacted prison staffing. Many institutions are operating at 50% of the staff that they need just to maintain safety. Finding incarceration institutions is more difficult. So we're reaching out to other organizations and other approaches to help real estate agencies help their salespeople, help people make their dreams come true. And to work with uh, staff of non incarceration oriented institutions, group homes, and re entry programs, and parole and probation programs, and other approaches that have nothing to do with incarceration. People who are coaches and mentors who want to offer their clients the ability to dream up a life worth giving. That's become our new focus of doing that. It's an evolving process. We haven't had any formal studies. We did some surveys in Ohio and the early institutions to get comments from people who participated. We have some wonderful video on dreamosophy.com of people who have participated in our programs while incarcerated, talking about their experience and how it changed their lives. And we're at the anecdotal phase. Human subject research is very difficult and expensive to conduct people have to be properly notified. And working with people who are incarcerated, we have to make sure that all the proper protections are in place so that people are not exploited and manipulated to try to produce a biased result. And so we're hoping that someone will step up and say, hey, we'd like to study this.
1: <laughs> Doro and I are really excited with Zenka to get started on our Wisdom of Dreaming, The Guide to Effective Dream Life. And we hope to start soon, right, Doro? Hopefully early next week, I think, is our scheduled time. And we look forward to using you as a resource, if that's okay, as we dive into the dream stream. (laughs) Is there anything, Paul, we haven't talked about that you want to talk about in these last few minutes of the podcast?
2: I think it's always important to mention lucid dreaming because that was an important aspect of my developing awareness. It's not the only thing to do with dreaming, nor even necessarily the most productive. You know, Focusing on how to control your dreams or always trying to recognize that you're dreaming while you're dreaming can become hard work. But for right. people for whom it's fun or people who are dreaming of trauma and nightmares, learning to recognize that you're dreaming while you're dreaming is not part of the book Wisdom of Dreaming, but it is an important tradition. And there's a young woman in Atlanta, Georgia named Amina Mara, who does a podcast Called the dreamworldpodcast.com, who talks about lucid dreaming and she interviews people, including me, about how to become lucid and what to do once you recognize that you're dreaming. And that for me was a very important doorway to the sacred dimension of dreaming. For me, life is a sacred experience. I'm really interested in pure consciousness and having life be precious and having a spirit of reverence and respect for all life. Lucid dreaming is a wonderful way to explore your own sacrament, your own experience of what it is to live inside a divine presence that is life. Through lucid dreaming, we can experience that aspect of being an expression of a manifest world that is alive. And we're not separate from nature, we're part of nature. The river flows through us. That's something that I wanted to mention also. And the notion of being imprisoned in your waking life can be a starting place from which to be liberated through developing a relationship with your dream life.
1: You have brought up things that I think it's the first time Dora and I have ever looked at it that way. So thank you for that. It's a whole different way of looking at our lives. And we so appreciate that because, as you said, it is so precious to be able to be here, to delve into even more consciousness, to become connected to everything. It's just incredible when you say that. So thank you.
2: You're very welcome. And may I end with a song?
1: Yes. Yes.
2: It's so easy to dream of the days gone by, so hard to think of the times to come and the grace to accept. Every moment as a gift is a gift that is given to some. What will we do with our days but work and hope? Let our dreams bind our work to our play. What can we do with each moment of our lives but love till we've loved it away? Love till we've loved it away. Beautiful.
1: That's so beautiful, thank you, Paul. Paul. Thank you so much for that gift.
2: Life is a precious gift. That it is. And thank you both for this inquiry. You've invited me into talking about things that I don't often get to talk about, and it's been a great privilege for me.
1: Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Tricia.
0: And I'm Doro.
1: Be well.